0: We left Noah and his family last time we were together with the waters of the flood having prevailed upon the earth. We talked about judgment. We talked about the the violence of that judgment, the the, the true catastrophe of that judgment. Forty days and forty nights of rain of the the great uh, fountains of the deep having been broken up, followed by another 110 days of the boat floating above the flooded earth. By the time of Genesis 8, by the time Genesis 8 begins, Noah and his family, along with all of the animals that had been brought onto the ark, had been together on this boat for 150 days, uh, around five months. And we pick up there in Genesis chapter 8, beginning, beginning in verse 1, where the Bible says this, And God remembered Noah, and every living thing, and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters assuaged The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained and the waters returned from off the earth continually and after the end of the hundred and fifty days the waters were abated and the ark rested in the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month on the first day of the month were the tops of the mountains seen So, after 150 days, the Bible says that God remembered Noah. Now, the idea here is not that God had otherwise forgotten about Noah. Uh, He's one of the only guys left. He's not going to be easy to forget in that sense. But the idea here, the word literally means to mark or to recognize or to take note. And the idea is this everything that God did in chapter 7 was done with respect to the wicked upon the earth, it was judgment. Noah had been saved from judgment. The things of Genesis chapter 7 had nothing to do with Noah. Noah was on the ark. The ark is, 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 is rising above the earth as the floods are prevailing. What God is doing in Genesis 7 is he is judging the earth. And then now as we get to Genesis chapter 8, God is now turning his attention from the judgment, which is now completed. It is over. Now he's turning his attention back to Noah. Noah. He turns his eyes to the man whom he had delivered and the things which God is now going to do, he is going to be doing as a part of finishing Noah's deliverance, not as a part of judgment. The judgment is finished. So God makes a wind to pass over the earth, so that the waters would assuage. Now, it's worth noting the word "wind" here is the same which we see in Genesis chapter one, verse two, translated there "spirit." And we talked about this in First John. So, if you were there uh, a couple of weeks ago in our First John series, I think it was um, was it last Sunday. I, I don't. I think it was. I don't remember. Anyway, when we were talking about spirits, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the Sunday that it was. I think that was last Sunday. Um, and uh, in First John, we talked about this quite a bit more. Um, wow, the week... Anyway, we talked about this quite a bit more in, in that first John sermon, so if you were there, um, then you already have heard this. But for those of you that weren't there, and of course you can go back and listen to it on podcast or YouTube, but in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word spirit is in fact the same word as the word wind or the word breath. And that because as we think about the nature of a spirit, be that the Holy Spirit of God, be that angels, be that demons, be that the spirit which the Bible says is in us that is quickened when we accept Christ as our Savior, our understanding of the spiritual is actually extremely limited. The Bible has very little to say about spirits. And even in the idea that it uses the word wind, what we find is that the Bible expresses the concept of a spirit as something which we know far more by its effect than by its essence. You and I don't see the wind. You and I don't hear the wind. We see the effects of the wind, right? We see, we look out our window in the morning and the trees are swaying and we say, oh, it's windy. That's not because you see the wind. It's because you see the trees being affected by the wind. You hear and you say, oh, I can really hear the wind today. But you're not really hearing the wind. You're hearing the wind whistling through the bad seal in your window. You're hearing the wind as it's rustling the leaves. You're feeling the wind as it's passing across your nerves. We don't see wind. We don't feel, or we don't, we don't hear wind. We, we do feel wind. But but these things, we are experiencing the effects of the wind. We know them by their effect, not by, their actu- by its actual presence. And the same is the, fa- the case with... Spirits. The Bible tells us so very little about spirits. And we might understand that that's how God wants it to be. God wants us to know spirits by their effect, not by their essence. So God chose the word wind here to describe both spirits in, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And, and to this end, we are reliant upon context to determine in the Bible, when the Bible uses this word, whether the Bible is speaking of something spiritual Or physical. Now, in Genesis chapter one, verse two, as the Bible says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep, it's fairly we can be fairly confident by what's happening there in Genesis one, verse two, that the Spirit of God is what's being spoken of there. But here, when we read about God bringing a wind to dry the to, to, to dry the land. There's no reason really to see anything other than the natural concept of wind. Nothing really dries the earth out faster than a good stiff breeze. And at the same time, the Bible summarizes that the fountains of the deep have been stopped. The rain from heaven is being restrained and the waters are starting to assuage continually throughout this time. Now, we know that, that the, the, for the first 40 days and the first 40 nights, the rain had continued and the waters were were um, uh, coming up from the deep and we would believe that at that point at the end of the 40 days all of the the supply of water ceased and now there was the assuaging process with the bible summarizing these events here so the winds blow the waters are settling we might assume as well that the earth might still be shifting some maybe those plates as we talked about last week colliding the mountains and the valleys are being formed and the water is rushing into those valleys uh, if you've ever uh, looked into the earth's oceans, some of the very deepest and biggest valleys and trenches on the earth are actually in the oceans. Uh, they're, they're, we, they're not on land where we see them. They're under the water. And we might see from that that as as the, these, these valleys under the oceans or in the lowest parts of the, the earth are being formed, that the water from the earth is just rushing and pouring into those trenches. And so because of that, the waters are starting to, to assuage from the higher land and going into To the lower lands um, that have been formed by the colliding of these humongous earth plates. So, verse three says that at the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, not entirely, but enough that the ark rested upon the earth, and that particularly upon the mountains of Ararat. Now, anyone who has looked into this issue before knows that there are there's plenty of debate about the mountains of Ararat and the location of Noah's ark, and There's not a lot of value necessarily in in staying on it for too long, and that for a couple of reasons here. First, take note that verse 4 does not say that the ark rested upon the mountain of Ararat, but the mountains of Ararat. The Bible gives us a mountain range, not a specific mountain. People talk about the mountain of Ararat, and there is a mountain called Ararat today, uh, and yet this was a mountain range. Range, and so we don't exactly know where in that range it would have been. Second, we would not expect that after some 4,000 years there would necessarily be anything left of the boat. Yes, if it were very, very high up on a mountain, it's possible it could have petrified and whatever the case may be, but for all we know, they tore it to pieces immediately afterward and built shelters or whatever it might be. We don't know that it's around. So finding its location would likely serve no greater purpose, or even for that matter, serve a whole lot of historical value perhaps. And on that note, I remind you again to be careful. Be careful with portions of the Bible that you prioritize. We're all drawn to the fantastic, to the interesting. What is the location of the ark? Where is Ararat? Where is Sinai? What happened to the ark of the covenant? What is the exact location of Mount Calvary? Where was Jesus' tomb? All of these things. And while these are very interesting... And they're very interesting, even for sometimes profitable reasons, that as we do see things that, that, that support the biblical historical narrative, there's been some great work done in the last decade especially uh, by a man named Tim Mahoney as it relates to research on the exodus and he's putting things together in a way that's very interesting and compelling and that aligns with, with, with not just biblical archaeology but a lot of modern archaeology if you just tweak a few of their preconceived notions and, 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 and assumptions. Really good stuff. And that's all very interesting and it can even be affirming. To that end, it might even to some degree increase our faith. But at the end of the day, these are not the things unto which God appeals in order that he might prove himself to us, are they? God does not appeal to the physical and the material or even the historical to prove that he is who he is and what he says is true. The Bible does not say that our confidence in God relies in physical evidence. It says our confidence lies in what he has given to us of his spirit. Our confidence lies in what comes out of us as we commit ourselves to him, not what we see In the world around us. Now, what we see in the world around us, we would expect to be consistent, but that's not where our confidence lies. The Bible does not say that all men will know that we are followers of the true and living God by our irrefutable evidence of historical veracity. The Bible says that all men will know that we are followers of the true and living God by the love that we have one toward another. To this end, all of these interesting topics, which make for great entertainment, and I've I've, I've I've, I've spent a lot of time. i spent time talking about the, 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 the evidence that the ark could actually float and the evidence that all the animals could fit in it. So I'm not saying it doesn't have usefulness. But let's be sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. And if we are spending all of our time researching all of these very, very interesting things about histor- history and archaeology, and, and, and this could also extend to end times ideas, and we spend hours and hours and hours on that, but we have forgotten to love our neighbor, but we have forgotten to love one another, But we have forgotten to forgive, but we have forgotten to be generous, but we have forgotten, be ye holy for I am holy. We are spending our efforts on the wrong things. We have put the cart before the horse. We're doing the things that are interesting and fantastic at the expense of those things that are actually profitable unto godliness. And let's be careful that we keep all of these things in balance. Because these other fantastic things, interesting things, have only limited value. And we need to be careful not to allow them to override the weightier elements of the Word of God. It is not wrong to pursue these interests. And since we are confident that the Word of God is true, historically true, we know that there was an ark, we know it landed somewhere, so, out of intellectual curiosity or even supplemental faith building, it could certainly be an enjoyable and worthwhile effort to, take some look, to, to look around a little bit. But we should take care that such things do not formulate the foundation of our faith, our understanding, or our spiritual priority. So we read that the waters were decreasing. And they did so continually until the 10th month. So from the, 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 the second month... Add five months to the seventh month. That's so that 150 days. Uh, we we first trace, and the four, first 40 days of that are uh, the the flood, and then the next 110 days are the assuaging. Until by the tenth month, which is another month and a half or so after that, the ark now sits upon the mountains of Ararat. Genesis 7.11 tells us that the flood began on the 17th day of the second month. 150 days or five months later would be the seventh month. The ark is resting upon the mountains. The winds begin to pass over the earth. The waters are swaging, And then uh, effectively two and a half to three months later, the 10th month, the first day of the month, so probably about two and a half months later, the tops of the mountains appear. We continue then in verses 6 through 12. And it came to pass at the end of the 40, uh, 40 days... That Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her, that would be the dove, in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days, and again sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came in to him in the evening, and lo, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet other seven days, and he sent forth the dove, which returned not again unto him any more. We come now to the first great symbol. In this chapter, on the first day of the 10th month, the Bible says the tops of the mountains were visible. Noah then waited another 40 days, and the Bible says that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and sent forth a raven. Now, the idea here is that Noah was looking for a strategy to know when the ground was clear so that they could sustain their lives outside the ark. You don't just need ground. You actually need uh, you need shelter, you need food, you need these sorts of things. And they might as well stay in the ark until these things are going to be apparent and available to them. And we actually read of two birds being sent out from the ark. First, as we just considered here, uh, a raven. that He sends forth a raven after these 40 days. And then second, he sends a dove. Now, these are very, very different birds. A raven is a bird of prey, a bird which would fly. And the Bible says that it it never says the raven returned. It says that the raven flew to and fro above the earth. And the raven would, of course, being a bird of prey, probably be feeding off of the carcasses of all of the dead things that were floating in the water from that great judgment. And uh, as we think through this, it's to that end that we know that the raven is in the Mosaic law, a unclean animal as we're All the birds of prey. A dove, however, is a granivore. It feeds on grains and it feeds on seeds. So there's a little bit of a different perspective or a different strategy in Noah sending forth the dove. The dove was a clean animal before the law, but the dove would go forth and it would uh, have to come back to the ark when it was tired or when it was hungry, specifically when it was hungry, because the raven could feed off of all of the carcasses. The dove could not. The dove could not eat until the dove had seeds until the dove had something to eat that was growing from a plant. So until there were plants that were actually starting to bud and to grow, there would not be anything for the dove to eat, and so the dove would have to keep coming back to the ark. And in this, we see a little bit of of an interesting strategy. So the earth was still filled with death, and the raven was in his element because he was flying around and and never really settling. Um, He was perfectly content to to land on these dead things and to eat them. The dove reflected a very different omen. While uh, while there was no seed-bearing plants, the dove would have to come back So after 40 days, Noah sends out the raven, which comes back and forth between the ark and the various carcasses, never really coming back into the ark. And then Noah sends forth the dove, and the dove comes back, and it comes back empty-handed. It found no rest, found no means by which to, to stop, to rest on anything, and it comes back to the ark. Seven days later, Noah again sends that dove out, And when it comes back, this time it returns with an olive leaf in its mouth. Now, olive trees are unique in that they actually are able to bud even under water. So this would have been some of the earliest indications of the renewal of the earth. It was also the first sign from outside of the ark that the earth was in a state of renewal, that God was bringing about that regrowth following the tremendous destruction and judgment And then Noah brings the the dove into the ark again, and seven days later, he releases the dove a third time, and this time the dove does not return to the ark. Now, as I mentioned a few moments ago, there is a general consensus that among these two birds, and what Noah is doing here, there is a true biblical symbolism in this series of events that takes place over some 61 days, from the release of the raven to the dove's final departure from the ark. There is not, however, a complete consensus as to what that symbolism necessarily is. So what I'm going to do is tell you what we know. I'm going to give you those thoughts, some theories, and then I'll leave it up to you to decide what you want to do with them. In that, in that God has not told us, it's not imperative, but we do see some things here which are interesting. So we know this of this contrast between the raven and the dove, that the raven is this carnivore and this scavenger, and the dove is a seed eater. The raven went to and fro and fed off the death of the earth, and the dove returned to the ark after each one of its excursions, bringing back an olive branch on the second excursion, and, and then, of course, not coming back after the third, reflecting in each outing more hope of restoration and of healing. And there have been various attempts to lay direct meaning to this contrast. One of those direct contrasts is the contrast between Satan... And between the Holy Spirit, we know from the scriptures that the dove is often representative of the Holy Spirit. That actually comes from the book of Luke, where Jesus comes from his baptism out of the water. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily form of a dove upon Jesus. And then the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we see this idea of a dove being symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And we might see in this a, a, an initial symbol of Satan who goes to and fro throughout the earth. And picks on the carcasses of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and has no usefulness for the things of the ark, for the things of salvation, for the things of God, but is rather simply going to and fro. And then, of course, the dove, the spirit of God who is, who is going through the earth and who is looking for that life that is upon the earth. Some will see the raven as the reflection, kind of the other end of that, the human end of that, of a carnal heart which has this portion in this world, content to live apart from God's salvation, feeding off of the death and destruction of the world that is around it, even that which is primed unto or has, has been judged. And then, of course, that in contrast which the, uh, with the dove, which went into the world to find that which was reflective of God's design in the world, God's life in the world but constantly returns to the ark of salvation seeking for God's provision so that as Noah would put forth his hand and bring the dove back into the ark Christ would, of course, in the same way preserve and to help and to welcome those who come to his salvation for rest. Another possible interpretation focuses upon the olive branch. As I said, historically the dove Even more specifically, the dove with an olive branch in his mouth has become not just a symbol of the Holy Spirit, but a universal symbol of peace, right? That when you see at the end of wars and whatnot, they'll release a bunch of doves uh, into the air. Um, You you oftentimes see this at the Olympics, right? Which is supposed to be a time where people are coming together and you're setting aside all of your... uh, your, your, um, Uh, uh, diplomatic squabbles and everything and you're coming together around sport and that's supposed to be very unifying and they'll release a bunch of doves into the air. And specifically the dove with the olive branch is idiomatically, offering of the olive branch, right, is an offering of making peace. And this is contrasted with the raven, again, a bird of prey, showing that it is the humble, the mild, right, the dove, not the ravenous and the aggressive raven, which brings the soul to peace and rest. So there are all of these different pictures that we see here, different potential symbols. And as we think through these symbols, I just mentioned the Holy Spirit appears upon Jesus following the baptism in the form of a dove. We find that in Luke chapter 3, verse 22. The dove is also a bird that God ordained, according to Leviticus 5, as an acceptable replacement for a lamb in the event that somebody needed to give a sin offering, an atonement offering, but could not afford a lamb. Then they would do two turtle doves instead, or two pigeons. To this end, we find God saw some unique value in the dove as a picture of peace, his leading, his love, Picture the Spirit of God himself, so that between Genesis 8, Leviticus 5, and Luke 3, there is a consistency of symbolism to give us a measure of confidence that something of what God is doing and that Noah used a dove here is intentional. All of that being said, however, there is nothing in Genesis 8 or anywhere else in the Bible that would actually give us any deeper insight into explicitly what the symbolism of this might be. And I think any of all, any or all of the things I just discussed have um, a measure of, of value to them, and that val- So, so that's a bit ambiguous, and and I, I discussed it with you today because once again, very similar to some of the other things I've discussed in the past many weeks, such as the Nephilim. These are things that I've heard quite often when people discuss Genesis. They I hear quite often about the Nephilim. I hear quite often about the distinction between the raven and the dove. I hear of these things, um, and and. I encourage you to think through them, to understand kind of your thought process on them. Um, But once again, as I just mentioned before, related to the ark and Mount Ararat and those sorts of things, uh, the, the way I like to put it is this. There's an awful lot that's on the words, on the lines of the Bible to spend our time trying to read between the lines. We've got a lot to focus on just with the lines themselves. So, again, while it might be good, thoughtful to think through the symbolism, and we we certainly do a lot of connecting of the dots, especially as it relates to trying to understand some of the things of, of what God is showing us for future events, we want to be very careful to whatever extent we are comfortable straying outside of the lines to get to what is between the lines, we may be right, we may be wrong, but one way or another, God has seen fit not to tell us. So let's be circumspect about it. So that is the, the more ambiguous of the symbols. The next one is not ambiguous, but we have a little bit of reading to get there. So let's, let's keep going here. Verses 13 through 22. The Bible says, And it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that would be the 601st year of Noah's life, The waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark. Thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee, bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth. After their kinds went forth out of the ark, and Noah builded an altar unto the Lord, and took every clean beast, and of every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and cold and heat. In summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. So as I said, in the six hundred and first year of Noah's life, in the first month of that year, the first day of that month, nine and a half months after the rains began to fall, the waters were dried up from off the earth. Noah removes the covering off of the ark, perhaps implying that the top was removable in some way, a convertible ark, and he saw the ground to be dry. But Noah still did not yet leave the ark. It would not be until the second month of that year, on the 27th day of the month, one year and 10 days after the rains began, that God commanded Noah and his family to leave the ark along with all of the animals that they had brought with them through that great judgment. God blessed them all. He commanded them to be be fruitful and to multiply, to breed abundantly upon the earth and to fill the earth. So they all went out from the ark. Then in verse 20, we come to what is our second symbol, our second comfort. The Bible says that Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and he took of every clean beast, and he offered it as a burnt offering unto the Lord. Now remember, seven of every clean beast came onto the ark, so he had a few extras of the clean animals uh, because of that. So he was able to sacrifice a few of those clean animals uh, unto the Lord without dooming those animals to um, extinction because there were, there were a few extras Of those. So he offered one of, uh, at least one of every kind, with perhaps three complete couples left over to replenish the species, or maybe he offered more of one kind. We don't exactly know how many, but either way, uh, all was well there. And the Bible says that the Lord smelled. The, uh, the offering and that it was a sweet savor to him. Now, this is something that we find throughout the Bible. This is the, the, this, this concept, this idea of God smelling the sacrifice and that it was a sweet savor to him. Now, the idea here is not that God uniquely likes the smell of burning flesh. This is not the picture or the, the concept that's being uh, uh, um, um, said here. The idea is this. That what Noah was doing was reflective of something, and what, what it was reflective of was very pleasing to the Lord. Noah, a righteous man of God, following this tremendous judgment, worshiped God. And that's what sacrifice was it was a picture of worship. And as the, that, the smoke from that flesh would go up into the heavens, that would be the picture of a man lifting up his worship unto the Lord. It's a very similar picture that we'll see in the Bible as it relates to incense and to our prayers and even to our songs. That as we sang those four songs this morning, as we do every Sunday morning, that those songs are lifted up as a sacrifice unto the Lord, as a worship unto God, and as it hits his ears, it is a sweet-smelling savor to the extent that it is... Right, to the extent that our heart is right, to the extent that what we are saying is what we actually mean, that we are worshiping in spirit and in truth. But think through this with me. Think through the statement that Noah is making when he sacrifices those animals on the altar after so great a judgment. Noah is saying, God, you are just, you are righteous in this judgment. This justice was terrible, but it was right, and now it is done. And this terrible and terrifying justice, it was not just terrible and terrifying in the eyes of man. Neither God nor man wanted such a judgment to come to pass. Neither God nor man enjoyed such a judgment. But the justice of God had to be satisfied. It was satisfied, and God was right in doing what he did. He was righteous in it. And that is what Noah was affirming as he lifted those animals and killed them and put them on that altar and lit them on fire and burned them as unto the Lord. And when God perceived this worship, this justification of his character by Noah, in that moment he made two vows. First, he would no longer curse the ground for man's sake. That's the fulfillment, excuse me, uh, that, that the fullness of the curse which God had levied upon Adam, would be at least in part lifted. We'll talk more about that. And then second, he would never again smite every living thing upon the earth in the way he had just done. And we'll see a clarification of that in the the idea of the rainbow here in Genesis 9. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. But in this, we see that God fulfills the prophetic purpose of Noah. Remember in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, when we were first introduced to Noah, the Bible said this, of Noah's father, and he called his name Noah, saying, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And it is here in Genesis 8 that we see this prophecy that was rooted in Noah's name fulfilled, fulfilled through the perpetual promise of seasons that God ordained seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, as long as the earth would remain. Now, there are a few unknowns here, but what we can perhaps surmise, and there's there's some surmising here going on by me, is this. That perhaps prior to the flood, we might have expected that there were not seasons. Why? Because God is announcing seasons here in Genesis chapter 8. And if there were not seasons... We might expect that in that time the earth was quite temperate and that the growing season was perpetual. We might also surmise by the fact that early in Genesis chapter 2 it says that God had had not caused it to rain upon the earth and then we do not see until uh, Genesis chapter 6 and 7 any sort of idea of rain that perhaps it did not rain or snow on the earth either meaning that there wouldn't be bad weather days, there wouldn't be droughts, there wouldn't be these sorts of things. But instead, there was a perpetual watering of the earth from the ground by the fountains of the deep, until the fountains of the deep were broken up, at which point the earth is no longer being watered. Uh, We might have presumed that to that point, um, the the, the pressure that would have been building up under the earth from the heat uh, on this layer of water that was under the earth was creating a steam that was perpetually, like in a greenhouse sort of way, that was perpetually just kind of watering the earth. And then when God... Plugged up those holes so that the, the pressure built up and then it caused the fissures in the earth and it br- brought about the tectonic plates and everything else that now there is no longer that pressure under the earth. So now we're not, we don't see the perpetual watering of the earth as we did before the flood. And so we might have expected that prior to the flood, things grew year-round. And things grew very well. If the earth was temperate and it was constantly watered, very similar to a greenhouse setting where you can, where, where, where you can keep plants year-round at the same temperature with, with a consistent water, which means you can grow things year-round, we might expect that the entire earth was that way. And if that was the case, imagine trying to keep up with that all year-round. So when God said, you will fight thorns and thistles by the sweat of your brow to Adam, we're not talking about during the growing season. We are talking about all year round, you have to stay on top of your land, or that land is going to overwhelm and overcome you. You are constantly, year round, day in and day out, dealing with thorns and thistles and weeds. And the way that God comforted man concerning the work of his hand, concerning this curse that he had levied upon Adam, was to institute seasons, Now we have a winter and a summer. Now we have a rainy season and a growing season. Now we have a seed time and a harvest. There is a season when man can rest from his toil following the harvest and before his planting. There's a season to recuperate the body. There's a season where the weeds will die. So that no matter how overgrown an area may have gotten the year before, there would be a chance to get ahead in the next year. There would be a chance to restart the next year because things are going to die off. Things are going to slow down and they're growing and you can get ahead of them. And God saw this as a way to comfort man concerning the curse. Now, as we look at the world around us and we see the way climate is now today, we recognize that the things, particularly things such as the moon and then the seasons and whatnot, are essential to all of the elements uh, of of how we understand the earth. And I once again impress upon you how very different things must have been before that flood. So much so, it it would be like an alien planet. We cannot even comprehend what things must have been like before that flood. And in this, we find a second symbol. Combined with the first, two symbols that are reflective of the comfort of God in the shadow of judgment. Judgment. That though wickedness abounds upon the earth, though God's judgment is sure upon mankind, yet God's heart has always been a heart of comfort toward those who love him and keep his commandments. So we read in Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. And of course, the ultimate symbolic comfort in these chapters is directed toward, as we'll talk a little bit more next week, the gospel. That though we are sinners separated from God and worthy of judgment, yet God has extended His olive branch to us in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And beyond just salvation, as we just read, the mercy of God is abundant upon those who seek unto Him, who keep His commandments. And God's character has always been this way from the beginning, from the very beginning. So the call, the call that Noah heeded is to stay on God's side. The call, as we see our world get crazier and crazier, it's a, as the world gets crazier and crazier, it is a louder and a louder call to be sure that you are on God's side. Now, before we close, there's one more important thing to mention about this promise that's made in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. And I'll use this as our application this morning. All throughout the book of Genesis, we've seen how very relevant, and we'll we'll continue to see this all the way through Genesis 11, how very relevant all of these introductory thoughts and concepts are to us today. When we talked about God making them male and female when we talked about uh, the nature of marriage and God instituting marriage, when we talked about uh, the the various elements of of God's design through... Uh, worship with Cain and with Abel and the nature of Cain's response to Abel. Cain being angry at Abel not because Abel had done anything wrong but because Cain's works were unrighteous. Then we talked about the line of Cain and how they had their portion in this life and the contrast between them that have their portion in this life and them that have their portion in the life that is to come. We have seen indelible universal lessons all throughout and those lessons are still relevant today as we step out into culture and we fight these battles of people trying to strip away from culture the very knowledge of God. And Genesis 8.22 helps us with another one of those ways that culture is attempting to strip from us the knowledge of God. We believe that the Bible is true from beginning to end. We believe God's promises to be unerring and unwavering from generation to generation. And God makes a promise here which society is feverishly demanding that we Christians today abandon. Society is demanding, we believe, that if we do not give up having children, give up eating meat, give up owning property, give up farming, give up using combustible engines, that there will be no more cold weather, that the earth will overheat, that there will be no capacity to grow food. And they insist that we must fundamentally change the very designs of humanity within the next decade or two or face a point of no return. Now, there are many rational and reasonable reasons to doubt such claims, rational and reasonable reasons. The fact that they only have a couple of hundred years of climate data to go off of, but they're certain that the earth will continue warming rather than going through some sort of cycle or warmer cold, which could happen. Or the fact that the actual worst recorded recorded heat wave, not the worst one, no doubt, but the worst recorded one, was actually in 1540. When in Europe, rain was down 80% for a full year, the Rhine River and the Seine River actually dried to the point that people could cross them on foot. The Thames River got so low that the river, instead of flowing out to the ocean, the ocean was actually pouring into the river and the river reversed direction. The temperature stayed unprecedentedly high for a full year, so much so, fields were so dry that they were developing massive fissures. Food became in such short supply, plants could not grow, cattle were dying of heat stroke and hunger, the dryness was causing fires, causing tens of thousands of homes to burn up. 1540 was the culmination of a full decade of extreme temperatures and massive droughts. But you know what's so interesting about that decade around 1540? 1540 was what happened during a period of time that now historians call the Little Ice Age. Interesting that the hottest period of time ever on record happened during a several hundred year span said to be unique for its unprecedented cold weather events. Blizzards, massive blizzards, temperatures so cold that that the Rio Grande River froze over. And all of this, by the way, hundreds of years before cars and when the Earth's population was only 500 million. So there are plenty of rational reasons to reject climate alarmism. But I don't even need a rational reason like that. Why? Because God has made a promise here. As believers, we have a divine promise that as long as the earth remains, until God comes and makes it anew, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. To this end, I know that the earth will not come to end in a climate disaster of man's making. We could call the end of the earth a climate disaster when the stars are falling out of the sky and when God turns the sun up to 11 and when these things are happening. We can call that a climate disaster when, you know, waters of the earth are turning to blood and such all the fish are dying. But that's not going to be a climate disaster of man's making. That's going to be a climate disaster of God's making. The earth will end in fire and drought and fear and catastrophe, but not because you drive an SUV, not because we've had a lot of kids, not because we eat meat. Now, as I say that, let me add a little bit more clarity still, and I've mentioned this way back when, when God ordained Adam to take care of the earth. When God made man, he gave man dominion over the earth. Man was commissioned to tend the earth and to care for the earth as stewards over God's creation. This means it is our responsibility to take care of this earth. We should not abuse or misuse either the resources or the animals that God has given to us. This is important too. The Proverbs tell us that a good man cares for the life of his beast. We don't abuse God's creation. We don't need to make a point to the climate alarmists by going out of our way to abuse God's creation, by being flippant, by dumping a bunch of these awful chemicals that we have created to make our lives easier into our water supplies and such. We don't need to do that, and we shouldn't do that. It's right and it's good for us to be looking for ways to clean up the messes that we are making with the resources God has given to us. But we don't stop remembering that God has given us those resources, that he has made us to take that dominion. The earth exists for man and we have the right, indeed, the commission to use those resources that God has given to us. And this is so very far from the evolutionary perspective that undergirds the world's thinking, that believes that man is a parasite on this earth, and animals who have risen to that that man is just an animal that's risen to the top of the food chain, which is threatening the world's existence that would otherwise be in natural harmony and peace. Of course, that is a completely religious view of the world apart from man. It's not not rational. It's religious. If evolution were true, you you might make more sense, but probably not, because survival of the fittest kind of degrades the whole peace and harmony thing. But God created man, so it's a moot point. God created the earth, so it's a moot point. And on the authority of God's word, God created the earth for man. We ought to be good stewards of this earth, but it is given to us to be used. The Earth is here for human flourishing, according to God's goodness toward man. And as such, combined with the great promise of eight, uh, Genesis 8:22, we don't have to worry as the rest of the world worries. We know God's promises. We know what the Earth is for, and we know how this Earth is going to end. And if we are going to fear... Let us not fear the potential dangers of using up all of the earth's resources, trying desperately to align with the warnings of climate scientists about an earth that is doomed to climate disaster. Let us instead fear the true and living God. If we are going to fear a disaster, let us fear the judgment that God has promised will come and let us align ourselves with him in that holy fear rather than with the fear of something which God has already promised will not come to pass. And may we align ourselves with the warnings of his great prophets that if we're going to think about the earth being doomed in any way, shape, or form, it will be very similar to the first judgment, the judgment of an almighty God in his time and in his way by his sovereign hand and according to his prescription. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people and I ask that you would help us that as we navigate these early chapters in the Bible, chapters which are not just a history of what was, but is a, a prescription for how things are. As we see the world that is around us, and we interpret it through the lens of what the Bible has told us has happened, may you grant us that we would retain and maintain a right perspective on us, Humanity, the world as it exists, and the world as you have ordained it to exist. May God's people be encouraged. May there be clarity. And in the end, may there be in every right way a true fear of you where we don't major on the minors, where we don't get distracted by the the, the things that people would seek to distract us with, but instead we remain laser-focused upon uh, upon the character and the promises of, of God in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. And may you be glorified in this body of believers as we seek to reflect unto you the glory that is indeed due unto your name. Ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.